The Nick Abbott Habit. There was a tremendous amount of news about this week, but no one was paying any attention because Cheryl Cole Veranda Leander Cortina Cassini and her current boyfriend, squire, husband, whatever, have decided on a name for their new baby. It literally came to me in a flash. A flash and two beeps. Somehow, and I don't know how, I've been signed up to receive news flashes for when something of great importance happens, like someone blows up Big Ben, or if Donald Trump finds a country he doesn't want to start a war with. At least that's how it started. My phone would chirrup if there was a terrorist attack, or in a major country that you could point to on a map without looking it up, decided on a new leader. But the bar for what constitutes a news flash seems to have dropped, along with the IQ levels of whoever decides to put out these things. And this week, my phone burst into life with the very important news that Cheryl Teeth and Liam Hairstyle had finally settled on a name for their newborn after five whole weeks of intense thought which almost caused them to furrow their brows. They didn't, because that would have given them lines, but almost. And after 35 days of deep contemplation, they've decided to call their child Bear. And as they're using Mr Hairstyle's family name of Payne, that makes their new kid's name Bear Pain. And I can assure you that I am bearing quite a bit of pain in telling you this. I blame Frank Zappa. It's all your fault, Frank Zappa, you bastard. He started this celebrity craze of seeing who can come up with the stupidest name for their offspring. And he set the bar pretty high, right off the bat, with Dweezil and Moon Unit. In case you don't know, I'm not making that up. He actually called his daughter Moon Unit Zappa and then called another of his children Diva Thin Muffin. Diva Thin Muffin Zapper. And he didn't even have the excuse of being on drugs at the time, because he famously didn't take drugs. Hard to believe. He didn't even drink alcohol. He was just high off moustache fumes. David Bowie called his Zoe Bowie. And that precipitated a celebrity arms race of stupid names they could give their children, as though they were fashion accessories and not real people who had to go through life being called Fifi Trixibel, or Heavenly Hirana Tiger Lily, or Honey Boo Boo, or Sage Moonblood, which Sylvester Stallone called his son. And Rob Morrow, the actor, called his Two. T-U. Two, as in Two Morrow. That is a true fact that I am not making up. Or how about Jermaine Jackson, who called his son Je Majesty? then there's that whole Jamie Oliver situation. It's got to stop. Or at least my phone has got to stop bursting into life whenever some dopey sleb decides to name their child for publicity reasons, rather than because they think it would be a good name for their offspring to have to announce themselves with every time they're asked their name for the rest of their lives. Not that I'm saying that any of these deep-thinking, caring adults are courting celebrity at the expense of their children's welfare. It's just that what's wrong with calling their kids David and Angela for crying out loud? Of course, my name is Nicholas Abbott, which sounds like an indiscretion in a monastery, but I'd like to draw a veil over that and assume that my parents had no inkling. Maybe they were drunk at the christening. The other thing that was apparently too important to uh, not let me know the instant it happened, the thing that I absolutely and totally must know right now, and that sent my phone flashing and beeping like I was at a disco, was that Katy Perry and Madonna got on the worst dress list of those attending some event at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. That Madonna shows up to something wearing a costume in bad taste is about as newsworthy as the sun rising in the east. 
And as for Katy Perry, and I know this marks me out as someone who is past their teens and therefore no longer hip and with it, but who the hell is Katy Perry? You know what also marks you out as not being hip and with it anymore? Using the phrase hip and with it, that's a sign. Like one of those old people crossing signs you see near retirement homes. One of those signs. This is the Daily Mail sending me these highly important updates, by the way. I don't know how they got my number, and I'd love to know how to turn it off. But in the meantime, if they send me something else, and it's anything less than the commencement of the war that will end all wars, I will go round to their offices, find the person responsible, and personally insert my phone up their body sideways. Of course, the one thing I didn't need an alert to know was happening was that the Orange Nightmare just passed a hundred days as the President of the United States of America, and we're not all dead yet. It's a tremendous success. Everybody says so. And to celebrate that fact that he hasn't blown up the world yet, he did a round of interviews with the press. You know, the press that he's always saying is fake and dishonest, but courts like a toddler seeking the affection of an aloof mother... And it was the Washington Examiner that he was talking to, and he went off script, which for a man with the intellectual capacity of a bath plug is dangerous. And for no apparent reason whatsoever, he started talking about the American Civil War. He'd probably just seen a programme about it on the telly and wanted to share his received wisdom, but he obviously wasn't paying close attention because he didn't really seem to understand it much. Oh, he'd been distracted by something shiny and had lost track of the thread of the documentary for a bit, and he started to ask why the American War of Independence had taken place. He said no one had ever asked that before. Which is like saying that no one had ever asked why World War II broke out. It's like he's learning everything about the world for the first time. Like he's crawled out of a golden box he's been hiding in for the past 70 years. And if you've seen pictures of the inside of his flat in New York, you'll know that that's about right and he brought up the name of President Andrew Jackson and suggested that President Andrew Jackson could have prevented the Civil War from taking place. He said, Andrew Jackson was really angry that he saw what was happening with regard to the Civil War. He said, there's no reason for this. People don't realise, you know, the Civil War. If you think about it, why? People don't ask that question, but why was there a Civil War? Okay. First of all, even a dumbo like me, who used to stare out of the window during history lessons and ignore everything the teacher was saying, even I know the Civil War in America was about slavery and about the South wanting to break away from the North, and Vivian Lee and Clark Gable and sitting through three hours of dross just to hear him say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That's what the American Civil War was about. You've got to find that out in about ten seconds on the internet, but maybe they don't have computers in the White House. And the other thing about President Andrew Jackson being angry about the Civil War, well, that was that was genuine news-breaking stuff. Because Andrew Jackson died more than ten years before the Civil War broke out. Now Trump's seeing dead people. I see dead people, millions of people at my inauguration. They're all dead. They were all there. Everybody knows that. He said, it was the American Civil War. Okay. But who was America fighting? Nobody knows. You'd think he'd know more about something that was a fight between liberals and a white supremacist breakaway group. You'd think that'd be right up his golden alley. But I suppose the wrong side won. So he's not that bothered about detail. The South won. Huge. They won bigly. 
Nobody will admit it. Why? Sad. And bang up to date, Trump seems to be itching to fire off some more rockets because they get great ratings on TV. President Donald Trump said that the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un is not as strong as he claims to be and that he will solve the problem of North Korea. And this caused some distress in diplomatic circles, as you can imagine. A senior analyst at the Brookings Institution think tank said that the back-and-forth threats between the US and North Korea could cause a needless stumble into war. Really? Do you think? Do we need somebody from a think tank to tell us that? Two bellicose, thin-skinned, doughy men with masculinity issues and ridiculous hairstyles who've never heard the word no could send us into World War Three just because neither wants to back down in the game of chicken. And they'll fight that war bravely from the safety of their bunkers. Trump's UN ambassador said that if North Korea tests an intercontinental uh, missile or nuclear device, then the president steps in and decides what's going to happen. Isn't there somebody else that could step in and decide? The pizza delivery boy would be better. Get the window cleaner to decide. He's got to be a lot more stable than the man on the inside of the bulletproof glass. And meanwhile, in this country, we have a strong and stable government or a coalition of chaos to choose from. Oh, my God. If I see one more pink-faced old duffer spout the phrase coalition of chaos on the news, I will heave my TV set out the window. You can see that the Tories are beside themselves that one of their number, some dull spark, came up with that phrase, a coalition of chaos, to describe a band of unity between the other parties. It's alliterative, it's almost a joke, and they're so pleased with it that any conservative spokesmodel that goes on television winds their whole argument up to its deployment. A memo must have gone round. Say this phrase or we'll look into your expenses. They use it as though it's the wittiest, most devastating political put-down they've ever heard. You can see it in their bloodshot eyes as they get near to using it. They get a little flush in their cheeks and their jowls go into a wobble. They're just so tickled pink to be using it. What we have here is a clear choice between a strong and stable government or a coalition of chaos. (laughs) Boris Johnson only used half of it when he branded Jeremy Corbyn a mutton-headed old mugwump who would cause security chaos. Close, bozo. No cigar. It's not security chaos. It's a coalition of chaos. Get your hair out your eyes. You'll be able to read it more clearly. But that wasn't the part that people were concentrating on. It was the bit that had people scrambling to the dictionary to find out the definition of a mugwump. You know, when you type it online, it autocorrects to mugwort, which is a shaggy, unkempt mess of a hedgerow topped with a blonde crown. Remind you of anyone? The full obligatory Tory phrases. We need a strong and stable Conservative government rather than a coalition of chaos under Jeremy Corbyn. And the idea is to repeat it ad nauseum until even the dimmest bulb in the box can remember it and act accordingly come election day. The Americanisation of British politics is complete. Any day now someone angling for our vote will promise that once in power they will make everything tremendous and great. And as for the notion that a coalition means chaos... Here's an edited list of some of the countries in the world that are run in just such a way. I can't give you the whole list because there isn't enough time. So they include, in no particular order, apart from alphabetical, Australia, Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, Croatia, Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Iceland, India, Indonesia, Israel, Italy, Japan, Luxembourg, Monaco, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Northern Ireland, Norway, Pakistan, Poland, Sweden and Switzerland. 
All of those countries are run by coalitions of two or more parties. None of them appear to be in chaos, apart from Switzerland, of course, but they keep it very hush-hush. And Iceland only descends into chaos whenever someone has to greet Bjork at the airport. But apart from that... And by the way, guess how many of those countries run by coalitions are among the top ten happiest places on Earth? Nine out of the top ten happiest places on Earth are run by coalitions. Canada is the only one that's run by uh, a, a single party. And you know how many of the top ten national economies on Earth are run by coalitions? Most of them. In the world's ten biggest economies, it's just us, the US, China and Brazil, not governed by coalitions. But Mrs M doesn't want that. She wants a strong hand for the very tough negotiations, as she pronounces it, over Brexit. I pronounce it negotiations with a lazy SH, not a clipped, bolt upright, scrub clean, sharp S. Negotiations. She says it like it's a bit distasteful, like a stain on your panties. Oh, you've negotiated your underwear again, I see. Pop them in the machine, I'll do them with the tea towels. But the best bit of the week was hearing the various leaders from Europe trying to pronounce Brexit. In France, it's Brexit. And in Italy, it sounds like someone whispering sweet nothings in your ear, trying to get you into bed. But that's what everything sounds like in Italian. But the Germans are the best. Brexit! You want Brexit! It sounds like someone shouting to see if you want a meal when you wake up. Brexit is served from 6am to 6.45. No exceptions. You will not take a roll back to your room from the Brexit buffet. Of course, when the Dutch try to say it, Brexit just sounds like a cat coughing up a hairball. They look great, the Dutch. But their language is just awful to listen to. If they just stood there looking tall and blonde and gorgeous, it'd be better. It's the speaking what lets them down. And I mean that with love or at least all the love that the Dutch would allow me to give them, which is none. I've been there, and they made that quite clear, damn it. I'm even prepared to work as an intern for the Dutch, you know, put in some hard work, wiping down the country, making them tea, in the hope of getting a full-time position where at least one of us would be naked. But nothing! It's like Facebook. I applied to be an intern at Facebook, and they wouldn't return my calls. I said, I have a face, I've read a book... I'm qualified to be the President of the United States of America. Why can't I come and work for you as an intern? And I know what you're thinking. Why would a tremendously successful and fully actualised beautiful person such as myself wish to be a lowly intern at Facebook? Well, how about earning eight grand a month for a start? You know, in this country, we think of being an intern as a way for companies to get slave labour. They get some eager young thing to come along for work experience and they set them alphabetizing the company's invoices or cleaning the coffee machine, and they don't pay them a bean because they don't have to. Well, Facebook doesn't have to pay their interns anything either. There's a queue of desperate, bespectacled geeks that could circle the globe who want to work at Facebook. So it's pretty good that they pay their interns $8,000 a month. And Microsoft and ExxonMobil aren't far behind. God, if they pay their interns that much, can you imagine how, how much they pay their actual staff? My God, they must be making bazillions. I'll be your intern, Bill Gates. How about it, Mark Zuckerberg? Hell, for $8,000 a month, I'll be your dog. Put me on a lead and walk me around the park. I'll catch a frisbee in my mouth. I promise not to drag my ass across the carpet. You can have it in writing. And still I get nothing. It's enough to drive you to drink. Oh, hey, you know what I heard? Beer is great at relieving pain. Two pints of beer are better than paracetamol for pain relief. 
Some study has shown that beer is better than paracetamol for relieving pain and can cut discomfort by a quarter. Two pints of beer equals one quarter less of discomfort. Which means, maths fans, that if you drink ten pints of beer, you can cut your pain by 125%. Isn't that fantastic? Medical researchers have been looking into this, and if you've ever met a medical professional on a personal basis, you'll know that if there's one thing that they are expert in, it's the consumption of alcohol. I think it's to cope with all those oozing and bleeding people you have to see all day. Bleeding people. This study was published in The Journal of Pain, which is a publication that I am not making up. It'll be one of those magazines that you pass the time reading while waiting for your appointment at the dentist's. And coincidentally, the Journal of Pain, the title of the new album by Megadeth, which will give you the sort of headache that will require at least six pints of beer to get over. The doctor said their findings suggest that alcohol is an effective analgesic that delivers clinically relevant reductions in ratings of pain intensity, which is medical speak for mine's a large one. Now the experts say they're planning to find out if alcohol either lowers the anxiety of pain which then reduces the perception of discomfort, or if it numbs the sensation of pain by affecting the brain receptors. And speaking as a non-scientist, who has no idea what he's talking about, I'm going with numbing. I could do with a couple of pints of sensation numbo right now, as a matter of fact. I'll see you at the bar. I'll be the one who's forgotten my wallet. And assuming we all live long enough, I'll be back for the next podcast on the 19th of May. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter, where I am N.I. Abbott, two Bs, one T. Also on Facebook. And my totally tremendous books are on the Kindle store on Amazon, the most recent of which is called, well, The Whole World's Gone Crazy. And I'll be back on air at LBC, Friday and Saturday nights at 10. Until then, I appreciate your attention. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!